0: You're listening to The Taylor Marshall Show, a special episode series, my commentary on the book of Revelation, calling it the Catholic Apocalypse. We're going to go through the entire book of Revelation as you, the listeners, have requested. So let's get started. Howdy, and thank you for tuning in to The Taylor Marshall Show this is yet another special edition where we're working our way through the book of Revelation. We're in the trumpets, the seven trumpets, at the end of them, where we see the woman clothed in the sun in chapter 12, the dragon, St. Michael, and then the war of the dragon upon the church. It's going to be a great commentary show. Well, here we are, probably at my favorite chapter in the apocalypse. It's Revelation Chapter 12. And it's notable that these chapter breaks that we observe in our Bibles are not original. When St. John the Apostle wrote down the Apocalypse, he did not write chapter 8 and then start writing and number of the verses. This came centuries and centuries later. So our breaking up of the book of Revelation into chapter marks is artificial. And I think of all the places in the Apocalypse, The most artificial or unhelpful break is right here at chapter 12, verse 1. Because in chapter 11, which we did in the last episode, we saw that God's temple in heaven was opened up and the Ark of the Covenant was revealed. And there was flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, in an earthquake and heavy hills hail. So there's big apocalyptic image. And then the very next line, which we call chapter twelve, verse one, says, "In a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet. So what we're seeing John do here, or actually it's God himself, the Holy Spirit, the sign in heaven is the temple in heaven opening up and revealing the Ark of the Covenant. Except the Ark of the Covenant is not a acacia wood box with gold on it. The Ark of the Covenant is the Blessed Virgin Mary. This is important for Jews because the Ark of the Covenant was lost after the Babylonian exile. How do we know this? The Bible tells us so. As you know, Catholics have seven books that the Protestants have rejected. And one of those books is 2 Maccabees, where Catholics get a lot of theology and a lot of insight. Now, in 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verses, beginning at verse 4, we read how when the Babylonian exile was, was coming, when the Babylonians were coming to Jerusalem, we read that Jeremiah the prophet, the prophet who wrote the book of Jeremiah, hid away the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the passage. I'll read it in full for you. The records show this is Second Maccabees chapter two quote, "The records show that it was the prophet Jeremiah who, prompted by a divine message, gave orders at the tent of meeting and the ark should go with him. Then he went away to a mountain from the top of which Moses saw God's promised land. When he reached the mountain, Jeremiah found a cave dwelling. He carried the tabernacle, the ark, and the incense altar into it, then blocked up the entrance. Some of his companions came to mark out the way, but were unable to find it. When Jeremiah learned this, he reprimanded them, saying, The place shall remain unknown until God finally gathers his people together and shows mercy to them. The Lord will bring these things to light again, and the glory of the Lord will appear with the cloud. As it was seen both in the time of Moses and when Solomon prayed, that the shrine might be worthily consecrated, end quote. So Jeremiah goes to Mount Pisgah. He hides away the Ark of the Covenant. Some of his companions are drawing out maps so they can remember where the Ark of the Covenant is, and Jeremiah says, no, no, it will remain unknown. It will be forgotten until God gathers his people again and shows mercy. Well, Jews have been waiting for this moment, At the time, the book of Revelation is written in the first century. So for 500 years, Jews have been waiting to see the Ark of the Covenant, and they never did. In fact, the temple that Herod built did not have the Ark of the Covenant in it. When the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, they went into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, and it was an empty room. The Romans were amazed that the Jews had fought so much to defend a temple that was essentially empty, no Ark of the Covenant. That's why Revelation eleven nineteen 19 and 12, 1 is so important for us as Catholics, because God reveals that the temple in heaven is opened and the Ark of the Covenant is no longer hidden in a cave where Jeremiah left it. The Ark of the Covenant has been assumed into heaven. And then the very next line says, "...a woman." clothed in the sun, and she's pregnant with a baby. This is why in the Litany of Loretta, we Catholics call the Virgin Mary the Ark of the Covenant. It's a biblical teaching. It's not something that was made up in the medieval era by corrupt monks and corrupt popes. It's something that goes back to the apostles themselves. The Ark of the Covenant in heaven, assumed into heaven, is the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. Think about it. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was gilded with gold. It was made of acacia wood, an incorruptible wood. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments on stone, the Word of God, the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, we don't revere—well, I mean, we have reverence for the Ten Commandments, but ultimately we have reverence, we even have worship, Latria, for— The Word of God made flesh. The Word of God made flesh who dwells among us. And where did that happen? It happened in the Immaculate Womb of the Virgin Mary. A teenage girl who was pure and holy, immaculate, without mortal sin, venial sin, original sin, prepared and constructed by the Holy Spirit himself so that she might be a worthy container but even more than a container, a worthy mother to God the Son. So that's exactly what we see here in Revelation 12. We see a woman clothed with the Son, standing on the moon, pregnant with the Messianic Son of God. Now, there's a little bit of confusion here as we break into Revelation 12, and it has to do with historical order and the order of events. I haven't read the passages yet, and we're going to do that. But as we move along here, I want you to notice that first, there's the great sign of the mother of the Messiah. She's described in cosmic and apocalyptic terms. You know, she's just not a human mother. Her status is has been elevated in some way. I mean she is a human mother but but something is added to her. Something's glorified in her. She's standing on the moon. For Aristotle, for Plato, for the ancients, they saw the moon as the boundary between earth and heaven. Everything below the moon according to Aristotle was changing, being born, dying, eroding, corrupting, being born again. But above the moon, according to Aristotle, everything was moving in circles, circular patterns, led by the prime mover. And this was eternal and circular and unchanging, no corruption. So when we see here in a first century context, a woman who's standing above the moon, what it's saying is that she has been lifted and elevated above the realm of birth and decay. She has been, as the New Testament would describe, glorified. And then she gives birth to a son. And then we see a red dragon who has seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, seven crowns on his head. And his tail sweeps down a third of the stars. These are a third of the angels. And casts them to the earth. And then the dragon makes war with the woman. Okay, so here's, the, here's kind of the difficulty that interpreters have with this passage. When does this happen? Does it happen at creation? Is this describing Eve and the serpent, the devil? Because it certainly does echo Genesis 3.15, where Eve falls into sin, brings us all into original sin because of the dragon, the serpent. And then God promises that she'll have a son who will save us all. So there's definitely uh, Genesis 3.15 happening there. Or is this something that happened in a primordial way? Did it happen before the foundations of the earth? And the reason some people ask this question is it describes the fall of Satan, the dragon, from heaven. So the order of events here is a woman gives birth to a son, Jesus, and then after that happens, Satan falls from heaven. And, you know, as Christians, we tend to think of it as, first, God created the angels. If you're a member of New St. Thomas Institute, you know we did a whole lesson on this, that the first day, according to St. Augustine, when God creates the light, he says, let there be light, and then he separates the darkness from the light, that separation is the separation from the good angels— and the bad angels. When God created the light, there's no sun or moon or stars. What what God's making there according to Augustine are the angels who are angels of light. And then when a third of the angels sin, they become dark and so God separates the light from the dark. That's day 1 in creation, straight to you from St. Augustine of Hippo. So that happens first, and then God creates, you know, the heavens and the earth and the waters and the fish and the birds and the beasts and the humans. So how can it be that in Revelation, you have a woman giving birth to a son and then Satan falls on day one. That would place the Virgin Mary and Jesus Christ before the fall of Satan. How do we reconcile this? Do we make a primordial incarnate Christ and do we make the Virgin Mary somehow Dwell as a goddess before the creation of the angels? Do we really want to commit ourselves to that? No, we don't. The Catholic Church, although we love the Blessed Virgin Mary and we love our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to be faithful to the principles of the incarnation, the doctrines of the ecumenical councils. We know that the Blessed Virgin Mary was conceived in the womb of St. Anne by Joachim, and that happened around 15 BC and then Christ was conceived in her womb right when she as a teenager and she was immaculate and pure and then he grew up to be 33 and die on the cross and all that happened in real history in the 1st century AD so how do we understand this well there's a franciscan tradition and it's recorded in the visions of maria agrata so this would be a private revelation not a public revelation you're free to accept this. You are free to reject it. Personally, I accept it because it makes so much sense with Revelation 12. And here's how it goes. The tradition is when God created all the angels, all the angels, the higher angels, the lower angels, the highest angels are the seraphim. They're burning with fire for love of God. And in the cherubim and all the way down to the archangels and the angels, he created all the angels but he did not give the angels the beatific vision. So on day one, when God said, let there be light, all the angels were created. They did not yet have the beatific vision, the vision of God's essence. And so he gave them a test, just as he gave Adam and Eve a test. And he showed the angels this image, the image that we read in Revelation 12.1. And I'll read it to you. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth and anguish for delivery. And another sign appeared in heaven Behold, a great red dragon. Okay, so there it is. So God shows the angels the image or the icon of a woman clothed with the sun, pregnant with God's son. And then he asked the angels, Will you serve me? Will you serve my son, God the Son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, or not? And most of the angels says, yes, we will serve. But Satan, Lucifer, the highest of the angels, persuaded a group of other angels, primarily by his example, and said, no, I will not serve. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to serve a god who looks like an animal who has hair and teeth and nostrils and fingernails and bacteria living in his digestive tract. That is not fitting of God. In fact, we angels are so powerful, we could easily kill such a human. Humans are very fragile. I mean, angels are, angels are extremely intelligent. They can see all of this. And so Satan himself thought that he could overcome God, who would become incarnate of a woman. Satan himself thought this was below him, so it was a sin of pride. And so he rebelled. And this is why Revelation 12 depicts the order of events as a sign in heaven of the woman, pregnant with God himself, and then Satan falling. So this is a private revelation, a tradition, and explains why the devils, who once were good angels, became darkened. And followed Lucifer to earth. This was also explained why, when Lucifer first sees Adam and Eve in the garden, he immediately sets his sights on Eve. Because Eve reminds him of the woman that he saw in that divine image. He wants to destroy her, he wants to corrupt her, he wants her to die. Because if Eve is brought into sin and comes under Satan's dominion, then Eve can't be used as a vessel to bring about the incarnation. So he immediately attacks Eve, and Eve falls. But Satan does not know or understand that God is going to redeem Eve. He's going to redeem Adam because a woman in the future is going to give birth to the Messianic Son of God. And so in Revelation 3.15, God says that he's going to put enmity between the woman and between Satan, in between her seed and his seed, in that her seed, her descendant, uh, a young man born of a woman, will crush the head of Satan. And then Satan spends the next several thousand years waiting and worried about a woman who will come in the future and give birth to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that, I think, is the best way to understand the fall of Satan and the best way to reconcile the out-of-order events in Revelation 12, 1 through 4. Also notable here, before we move on to the rest of the vision, is that she's crowned with 12 stars. The constellation Virgo, up in the sky, you can't really see it if you live in a city, but if you're out in the country. Uh, visible to the eye are 12 stars around the head star of Virgo. Uh, but also these twelve stars stand for the twelve tribes of Israel, also the twelve apostles. She is the queen of Israel, she's is the queen of the Jews, but she's also the queen of the apostles, and she's the queen of the church. So she wears a crown of twelve stars. A lot of people ask about you know her crying out in pain at birth because the Catholic Church officially teaches that the Blessed Virgin Mary did not have pain in childbirth. This is dog tr- This is doctrine, this is dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church. She did not have pain. It's also the unanimous position of the Church Fathers, like St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, the Eastern Fathers, all of them. I've written several um, articles, several posts on this, and if you want to learn more, I don't want to—it'd take me 30 minutes to go through it all, but if you want to see— where the councils and the fathers and the popes have spoken about Mary not having pain in childbirth, just go to my site, taylormarshall.com, and there's a search bar. Search there, Painless Birth of Christ. There's also a whole uh, video lesson on this in the New St. Thomas Institute. So if you're a member of the New St. Thomas Institute, go into the curriculum, the Certificate on Catholic Theology, and there's a module on Mariology, the study of the Blessed Virgin Mary log in there and go to the the module on mariology and you can you can see a whole video where i cover this teaching on the, uh, bir- the birth the birth the painless birth of christ from the womb of the virgin mary so if that's the truth and that's what the catholic church teaches why here in revelation 12 does it say that she cried out in pain when she was giving birth well the church fathers and the catholic church interpreting this passage describes it as the birth pangs of the church. And the fathers mystically and beautifully explained that the Blessed Mother had no pain whatsoever when she was giving birth to Christ, but that all the pain of bearing a child was reserved for her spiritually at the crucifixion of Christ. So ladies don't think, well, why, did, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary didn't have to experience it. No, listen. Her pain in her body and in her soul were were so intense at the foot of the cross that it was like the pain of of all the women in the world combined together. Because at that moment, she was seeing her innocent son die for the sins of the world. He didn't deserve this. She knew he didn't deserve this, but she consented to it. And it was piercing her heart. A sword pierced her heart. And in doing that, she became the mother of the church. Christ is the head, we are the body. She birthed the rest of Christ, that is us. And when she bears us, it is painful because we have sin. Your sin hurt her son, Jesus Christ. Every one of your mortal sins was like a slap on his face, spit in his face, a punch in the face, a scourge, a whip slapped across his back, pulling away the flesh. She knows that your sin and my sin did that to her son, and yet she loves us. And so she gives birth to us, but that birth is painful. So that's what it means here, that she had birth pains. It's not referring to her birthing Christ, the sinless one. It's her birthing us. And so this infuriates the red dragon, who is Satan, and he has seven heads. Now, seven's a number of perfection. So we might expect him to have six heads, but he actually has seven heads. The reason he has seven heads goes back to the book of Daniel. In Daniel, there's the vision of the four beasts. And we're going to see the beasts come up in Revelation 13 soon here in the next episode. But the four beasts are the lion with one head. And then there is the bear. He has one head. And then the third beast is a leopard with four heads. And then the final beast is the Roman beast with one head. So if you take those together, uh, that counts up to seven heads, right? Three plus four, you get seven heads. So right here, we're seeing that this dragon, Satan, has the seven heads of the four beasts described in the book of Daniel. So again... Daniel's the key to understanding book, the book of Revelation. He has ten horns, again, that comes from the book of Daniel. And he has seven crowns, again, coming from Daniel because those seven heads um, signify the seven pagan Gentile kingdoms, dominions that rule over Israel. And his tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. Um, here, stars are often seen as signs, apocalyptic symbols of the angels. So one-third of the angels become sinful. They become demons, not angels, because they are filled with vice and hatred of God. And then the dragon stands before the woman who was about to bear a child that he might devour her child when she brought it forth, she brought forth a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which to be nourished for one thousand two hundred and sixty days. OK, so the dragon stands in front of the woman. He opens his mouth and he waits for that child to be born because he wants to eat the baby to kill the The child, but the child is caught up. The child is ascended into heaven. He is safe, and there he rules the nation with a rod of iron. The rod of iron is a reference to Psalm 2. The Messianic king has a rod not of gold, but of iron, which shows strength and permanence, also humility. But also in the book of Daniel, in the vision of the fourth kingdom, which is the Roman kingdom, it's a kingdom of iron. And so this shows us that Christ will use the Roman Empire. He will convert the Roman Empire into the Roman Catholic Church. And from the Roman Catholic Church, he will rule the nations through the Vicar of Christ, St. Peter. And then the woman flees into the wilderness, into the desert, just as Israel fled into the wilderness. And she has a place prepared to her for her by God. 1260 days. Now, this detail here leads people to think, okay, well, the woman here is not the virgin Mary. The woman here is ancient Israel. Because ancient Israel was, you know, had did battle with the devil. They went into the wilderness and they were nourished by God. So, this isn't the virgin Mary. It's the Jews. It's the people of Israel, the 12 tribes. Well, it's both. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the daughter of Israel. She is the perfect Israelite. She is the descendant, blood descendant, of King David. She is without sin. She keeps the Torah perfectly. She never breaks one kosher law. She never breaks the Sabbath. She keeps the Mosaic precepts perfectly. So she is the true Israelite. She does signify true Israel, As we see at the end of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 66, it describes Israel, Jerusalem, as a, as a mother who with her breasts nourish the people of God. And Mary is that mother. She nourishes not only the Son of God with her maternity, with, literally with her physical breasts, but she also nourishes us. We enter into a land of milk and honey. And that land is, go, is prepared for us by the Ark of the Covenant, the Blessed Virgin Mary. She is our great city. She is the Bride of Christ. She is the Mother of Christ, the Mother Church, the Mother from on high. These are all biblical terms that are taken from Isaiah. They're taken from the prophets of Israel. And the New Testament and the early church begins to use them and adapt them and see them as Our Lady. As I said in the earlier episodes, the book of Revelation is ultimately a story about two women, Lady Wisdom, who is pure and holy, who signifies the new Jerusalem coming down from on high, and then Lady Folly, the sinful lady, who represents the great harlot, the prostitute, the one who commits adultery against God by fornicating with the nations, and committing sins and sorceries, and rejecting Christ. And that is old, earthly Jerusalem. It's the sinful Jerusalem. It's the Jerusalem that was destroyed in the year 70 by the Romans. It is the Jerusalem that crucified Jesus Christ. It is the Jerusalem that was led by their high priest saying, we have no king but Caesar, when they rejected God as their king and took the Roman pagan, idolatrous Caesar as their king. And we're going to see as the rest of the book of Revelation unfolds, it's really a debate in a conflict between two women, the perfect woman and the sinful prostitute woman. And the book of Revelation is going to challenge you and me and say, which woman are you going to join? The beautiful, holy spotless virgin woman, or the whore of Babylon, the prostitute, the adulteress. Because whichever one you choose is going to determine which city you belong to. The city of heaven, where you will have joy in the beatific vision and purity, or the city of hell, which is cast into the lake of fire, where there is torment and hatred. Okay, so that's the rest of the book of Revelation. Back to verse 6. So we can see here that Our Lady is a type—no, no, no, I'm I'm sorry. Israel is a type of Our Lady. Our Lady also is the icon of the Church, as we learn in the Second Vatican Council. And as great Marian theologians have told us over time, like St. Maximilian Kolbe, St. John Damascene, the early Church, Mary is an icon and an image of the Church. The Church is a virgin bride. The Church is holy. The Church is a mother— The church is feminine, the church is receptive to the Word of God. Mary is all of those things perfectly by virtue of her immaculate conception. So we don't worship Mary, she's not a goddess, but we see in her the icon and the image of what we are all supposed to be. We are supposed to carry and bear Jesus Christ inside of us. We are supposed to say, as Mary said to the angel Gabriel, Be it done unto me according to thy word. We are supposed to follow Jesus wherever he goes. When people ask us about Jesus, we, like Mary in John's Gospel, say, Do whatever he tells you to do. We see that Mary is the perfect disciple. So when it says here that she is nourished in the desert for 1,260 days, it reminds us, as we see over and over in the book of Revelation, That there is a time of tribulation, a time of temptation, a time of testing, a time where God's enemies are winning the battle, so it seems. It's a time of three and a half years, 42 months, or 1,260 days. All of those add up to three and a half years. It's a broken seven. It's half of a seven, and it signifies that God allows his enemy to triumph in his own eyes, in in the enemy's eyes, for three and a half years, but then after three and a half years, forty two months, 1, 6, or sorry one thousand two hundred sixty days, God flips the scripts and He punishes the devil, his beasts, his Antichrist, the scarlet whore, the prostitute of Babylon, and that's exactly what we see here because in the verse seven, the very next verse, it says now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and the angels fought, but they were defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And that great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and glory, uh, sorry, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. By the way, that's all from Daniel. Back into it, quote, For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Rejoice then, O heaven, you that dwell therein, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is is short here we see a war breaking out in heaven this again lends credibility to this this private revelation this franciscan tradition that god shows a icon an image of like a like a preview a preview a trailer to what's going to happen he shows an image of a woman that's going to give birth to god himself as a human child and that what, that's what leads to a big war in heaven. And St. Michael the archangel casts Lucifer and his demons out of heaven, and they go down to earth. And then the book of Revelation says, Woe to you, land and sea, because the devil has come down to you. Then in verse 13 we read, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. There we have it, three and a half year. One, two, half. Add all that up, you get three and a half. Adds up, as it said before, 1,260 days. So the dragon's on the earth, and now he's pursuing the woman. This reminds us, of course, of Adam and Eve. He goes straight to Eve. He's like, uh-oh, this could be the woman who's going to bear the child. I need to get her. But she's given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. So this has to do with Eve being preserved and protected by God. But it also applies to the historical Blessed Virgin Mary. Because she, according to her tradition, was the the apostles were worried that if she remained in Jerusalem she would be in danger, and perhaps the high priest would persecute her, perhaps even kill her. So it was decided that St. John the Apostle, the Apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, by the way, would take the Blessed Virgin Mary away from Jerusalem, away from the Holy Land, and hide her, protect her. And so he took her to Ephesus, and this is the universal tradition of the Catholic Church, that Mary was taken by St. John to Jerusalem, I mean, sorry, from Jerusalem to Ephesus. And and by the way, the, the tradition is in the Eastern Church and in the early Church that she did come back to Jerusalem at the end and had her dormition in Jerusalem, not at Ephesus. I know some of you who are into, say, Blessed Anne, Catherine Emmerich, follow that tradition. She says that, that Our Lady died, that she experienced the dormition, and then the Assumption in Ephesus but I I don't think that's right. The early church, Saint John Damascene, the Eastern Fathers testify that her dormition and her assumption happened in Jerusalem. In fact, there's a there's a tomb there, a shrine, a church built over her tomb, um, where she was laid after she fell asleep, and where she was assumed into heaven. Anyway, back on track here. Sorry to get off on these ta- tangents, but the serpent persecutes Our Lady, but she's preserved. She's taken away. And then it says the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river which the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. That's the end of chapter 12. Okay, so the serpent opens his mouth, and he begins to vomit water. Water begins to come out of his mouth, and he's trying to create a flood. He's trying to wash her away. This reminds us of the people of Israel. Again, we're seeing the lady here as Israel, and he's going to flood them out. This is like Pharaoh. He's got him trapped at the water. But the earth comes to the assistance of the lady, and she's preserved. She doesn't drown. She's kept safe. In other words, she passes on dry land. It reminds us also of how the Ark of the Covenant, when Joshua brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy Land, the, the River Jordan was stopped up because the Ark of the Covenant, they, the Levites led the Ark of the Covenant into the river, and the river was stopped up. The river could not overcome the Ark of the Covenant. And then the people of Israel passed over the river as on dry ground and entered into the Promised Land. We see all that imagery happening right here in Revelation 12, that the mother of Jesus, who is Eve, who is Israel, who is the Virgin Mary, stops up the lies of Satan. How is Satan getting us now? Well, he's not vomiting water on you and your family in your house and trying to flood out your house. What he is trying to do is drown you with lies. Lies that you see on the news at night. Lies that you read in the newspaper. Lies that you hear people say at work. Lies the devil whispers into your ear at late at night when you're laying in bed worried about things. It's the lies that are drowning you. So how do we resist The lies that come from Satan's mouth? Well, it has something to do with this woman. It means you have to join Holy Mother Church. The woman's going to save you. It means you have to have a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary to protect you from lies. She is the mother of Truth Himself. Capital T, Truth. So if you want to know the truth, you need to get to know Truth's mother because she is Lady Wisdom. She is sedes sapientiae, the seat of wisdom, as we say in the lit, lit, the litany of Loreto. I'm going to close up today with verse seventeen and twelve, because it reveals to us it's, it it reveals to us a teaching that surprised me when I was a Protestant reading the Book of Revelation. It says that the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. So, who are her offspring? Well, if you keep the commandments of God the Father and you bear witness to Jesus, you are her offspring. You are her children. Why did this shock me when I was a Protestant? Well, I was always kind of worried that, you know, well, maybe this is the Virgin Mary here. But it confirms it. It can't just, this woman can't just be Israel, and it can't just be the church. It has to be a historical person, because we are the church. We are those who keep the commandments of God and bear the testimony of Jesus. But it says that we are individually the sons, the daughters, the offspring, the children of this woman. So you can say to someone who's not Catholic, who's a Protestant, who seeks to follow God and seeks to bear witness to Jesus Christ, you can say, you know, according to the book of Revelation, if you're bearing witness to Jesus, you are a child of the woman. You are a child of the mother of Jesus. And just let that sit there for a moment. It also shows us Catholics if we aren't keeping the commandments of God and we are not bearing testimony to Jesus, we are walking away from her maternal care. We're saying, you know, look, Ma, no hands. You know, I'm going to go off and go on my own. Yeah, I know Satan is pouring out lies and he's spouting out falsehoods. And yeah, I don't really need you. I'm going to go on my own and I'm going to fight the devil by myself. Mm, Good luck with that. It's not going to work. So this shows us a devotional element. This shows us that if we love Jesus, if we can keep the commandments of God, we become Mary's baby. We become a child of the Virgin Mary. It means we automatically de facto are being asked to have a relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary. I know there's a lot of Protestants who listen to the Taylor Marshall show and I know there's a lot of Protestants who are, you know, listening to this Catholic commentary in the book of Revelation because they're interested. I want to challenge you, if you're a Protestant listening, look at this chapter. Read it over. Read it five times and ask yourself, is the mother of Jesus important to St. John? Is he important to the new covenant? And then ask yourself at the very end here, do I bear witness to Jesus? And if I do, where does that put me in relationship to the Virgin Mary? Now, some of you Protestants may say to me, well, you know, Taylor, you already admitted that the woman that gives birth to Jesus is ancient Israel and is the church. I'm just going to take that. I'm going to leave behind the idea that it's the historical Virgin Mary. I don't need that, and it's not required of me as I read these passages here in Revelation 12. Well, I'm going to counter back and say you can't do that responsibly. Here's why. Look in verse 7, Revelation twelve seven. It says Michael and his angels. Now, do you believe when it says Michael there that it's referring to the angelic person, the angel, Michael? Yes, you do. And when it says that the woman gave birth to a child, that child is Jesus, right? I mean, it could signify the church itself, but that child is the historical Jesus Christ, right? Yes, and then... When it says the dragon who's pursuing the woman, that's referring to a historical person, the fallen angel called Lucifer, right? And then at the very end, when it talks about these individual, individual human persons who keep the commandments of God, those are referring to real, historical, actual persons, right? Yes. So everywhere in here, we have already four... Is it four? Yeah, four examples. When it talks about one of these symbolic persons here in Revelation 12, it's, it's referring to a real person. But you're telling me that when it refers to the mother that gives birth to the son, it's not referring to a historical person. That's inconsistent. The context here in Revelation 12 is talking about real, actual persons. And yes, they can also stand in for and signify and be icons of other realities, Michael can signify the rest of the angels, but Michael is still Michael. And the devil can signify all the fallen devils, but the devil is still the historical devil. Right? And so Mary can signify the Old Testament people and the New Testament people, but Mary is still the historical mother of Jesus Christ who gave birth to him. So you can't say that the Virgin Mary's not here. The Virgin Mary is here. I'm going to close with... Um, some thoughts here about her assumption. Uh, Protestants, as you know, don't typically accept that Mary was assumed into heaven. The teaching of the Catholic Church, as defined as dogma in 1950, teaches that Our Lady, at the end of her life, was assumed body and soul into heaven. Now, the doctors of the Church, I'm thinking here, St. Alphonsus Liguori, St. John Damascene in particular, those two who are great Mariologists, probably, well, Maximilian Kolbe's maybe up there in the top three, but these two men, St. John Damascene and St. Alphonsus Liguori, teach explicitly that the soul of Mary separated from her body when she fell asleep, when she experienced the door mission. Now, she did not die because she committed any sins. She did not die because she had original sin. As we know, she had no original sin, no venial sin, no mortal sin. She did not even have concupiscence. Her passions fully ordered. But when she fell asleep, there's a tradition, again, not public revelation, not dogma, that Christ appeared to her, her son, before she was to end her life and said, you know, blessed mother. You have not sinned. You've been preserved by myself and by the Holy Spirit. It's time to bring you home. And she asked her son that she would experience human physical death, even though she had not sinned. And it was granted to her. The reason she wanted to experience human physical death, the separation of the soul from the body, is because she wanted to be in all things like Christ. She wanted her life to be a copy of Christ, because Christ is her Savior. She didn't commit sin, but she still is his Savior because Christ grants her the, the beatific vision. And that is salvation. Salvation is the beatific vision. So he didn't redeem her from sin, but he did save her and give her the beatific vision. And so he granted this. And when he granted her the dormition that her soul would separate from her body, and according to tradition it happened three days just as it did for Christ, that he gave her dominion. That he gave her power over the realm of the dead, and this is why she has the power over purgatory. And it's related to the brown scapular, to her title as Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which again is is a, a, a very Jewish apparition. It's one that goes back to the Holy Land. It's it's her lady. It's it's Our Lady as Queen. And so, if you want to learn more about this, again, I, I've written several articles, several posts on uh, Our Lady and Her Dormition. By the way, the papal degree, decree by Pius XII dogmatizing Our Lady's assumption into heaven in the actual dogmatic formula, it says the end of her life. But if you read the entire apostolic constitution, the name of it is, Muvi-, Mu-, it's, a, it's a tongue twister, Mu-, Mu-, munificentis-, Lalala, Lalala, munificentissimus Deus, munificentissimus Deus. There it is. All right. Uh, It's by Pius XII, 1950, Apostolic Constitution. He says repeatedly, and he cites fathers and saints stating her death and referring to her grave. So it's in there. It's in the context. If you actually read the entire document, a lot of people don't like this, but you need to realize that by Our Lady accepting the separation of her soul and body and experiencing that for three days, it makes her more powerful it it allows her to enter into Christ's priestly ministry in a deeper way it it maximizes mariology it gives her more privileges that's why all the saints who teach a maximal mariology also hold that the, she had the separation of her soul and body and you'll see in the ancient icons you'll see our lady laid out on a bier right and her soul, her, her body's there with her hands together, and the apostles are all around her. And then above her, you'll see Christ himself holding a little baby girl, like wrapped up. That little baby girl is a symbol of the soul of Mary. So Christ has already received. He's taken and received the soul of Mary. He's in heaven. He has her soul. Her soul is in heaven. It's symbolized like a little baby, so it's like a reverse Madonna. Usually we see Mary holding the baby body of Jesus— here we see Christ, triumphant, holding the baby soul of Mary and her body's on earth. And then three days later, that soul reunites with the body and ascends into heaven. To speak more, more theologically correct, Christ assumes he takes up her soul into heaven. And we see that in Revelation 12 because she stands on the moon. It shows that her destiny as the mother of Jesus is not to be decayed and corrupted on earth but to be standing triumphant over the moon and as i said earlier the moon is the sign of the boundary between that which changes and that which is eternal by the way the reason for that is is the moon is always changing right the moon is waxing and waning waxing and waning and so the moon whereas the sun is not the sun is the sun and this is why the ancients said you know the moon is that boundary where things have changed, corruption, waxing, waning. After you get past the moon, it's eternal. It's unchanging. And that is where God, in the revelation of St. John, places the mother. And this is why in Catholic art, Our Lady is often standing on a crescent moon. Yes, does it does it signify, in a way, Islam? Yes, it shows that Our Lady will conquer Islam. And I, I, I personally believe in about 100 years, Islam... Will be dead, uh, and Our Lady will triumph over it, and there'll probably be an apparition or something amazing that will happen. But Islam will come to an end, and it will it will come to an end through Our Lady. But primarily, that moon there signifies that she is assumed into heaven. Well, that finishes up Revelation chapter twelve. Next week we'll do Revelation chapter thirteen, and this is the beasts, the land beast, the sea beast. I've already done a podcast on this topic. Um, in the Taylor Marshall show. I was actually going to skip this chapter because we'd already done it before, but I'm going to do it again because I've been doing a lot more study, a lot more reading, and there's some things I could add. So I hope you don't mind if we just go ahead and do Revelation 13 again because I think we can add a lot of value and a lot of benefit as we read that one line by line. Well, thanks for listening. God bless you. Uh, I would ask you, if you would, please, please uh, share this podcast with your friends. Last week our podcast hit five hundred thousand downloads. That's a half a million downloads of the Taylor Marshall podcast. And I again, as I always say, I'm just the guy on the microphone holding a Bible and reading. You are the men and women who are sharing this podcast with your priests. You're telling your spouses about it, your kids, your family, your friends, Your people in your Bible study. And that's why this podcast has gotten to half a million downloads because of you. So I thank you for that. I also want to ask you if you wouldn't mind if you'd go over to iTunes and leave a review or a comment. And the reason I ask people to do this is it helps in iTunes to raise the level of the show. And that way other people can find it. There's a lot of dangerous and crummy, you know, religious Christian podcasts over at iTunes. And so, whenever you leave a comment and whenever you leave a review, a one star, two star, three star, four star, five star, it helps people in the iTunes algorithm find the Taylor Marshall Show. And so, so many of you have done that. I just want to thank you so much for you know taking five, ten seconds and going over into iTunes and leaving a message. And I want to I want to send out a shout out to several of you recently who have done it. Uh, again, there's over 370 of you that have done it. But I want to thank, in particular, A. Boyle. Uh, thanks for the five-star review, A. Boyle. Also, shout-out goes to F.G. Tucker, who's been listening to all these lessons while he's been on a, on a drive. Thanks again for the five-star review, uh, F.G. Tucker. And also, Jay Bertero. Thanks for the review. Uh, John Holston, G. Mawf, John Ignatius, Sweetface25. I bet that's not your name, Sweetface, but thanks for leaving a review and and for the five-star rating. Um, Lyndon Wood. Also, TG. TG, I loved uh, reading your review there. Thank you so much for the encouragement. Also, uh, Heart and Mind. Thank you also for your review. And uh, I want to give a special shout-out to um, someone who wrote here. They they left their name as I'm Too Busy 2013. I like that. Um, But He or she wrote, I can go on and on about the wonderful experience gained through Dr. Marshall's new St. Thomas Institute. In the end, it is our spirituality that matters. He or she writes, it is humbling to know that as faithful as I am, as intelligent as I am, I knew nothing until I began listening to Dr. Marshall's podcast and through the Institute. I began the podcast on the book of Revelation yesterday. Wow. It's one thing to go to church and worship. But what non Catholics need to see is evidence that Catholics are not ignorant. Dr. Marshall is a leader of the intellectual. Thank you, Dr. Marshall. Your podcasts are not worthy of five stars. They surpass them. And then we have XOXO XOXO. XO. So I guess those are hugs and kisses. So hugs and kisses right back at you. And thank you so much for that really encouraging um, note. I always say this, you know, sometimes I get discouraged about the podcast. But I go in here to the reviews on iTunes and I read them before I record a podcast. It always encouraged me because I see that you guys are benefiting from it and that you're growing. So thank you so much for leaving these. And if you haven't and you're new to The Taylor Marshall Show, head on over to iTunes, click on Ratings and Review, and leave a comment. You have my promise that I will mention you by name. And if your comment really hits me, maybe I'll even read it out loud and and give you props Also, just one announcement before we close down. Uh, The New St. Thomas Institute Enrollment will be opening up um, once again. So if you're interested or if you're on the waiting list, uh, look for notification. We're going to open up a few more spots here. So if you want to take online classes and earn your certificate in Catholic philosophy, Thomistic studies, theology, apologetics, um, check it out, newstthomas.com. Till next time, till Revelation chapter 13. Remember that Jesus Christ said that you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, so go out there and be salty. was brought to you by the New St. Thomas Institute. Discover online Catholic classes and earn your certificate in Catholic theology at the New St. Thomas Institute. To register for online Catholic classes, please visit newstthomas.com. That's newstthomas.com.